Hey folks, how you doing? David Ellenbogen here. Hope you're doing great. I am recording this at the historic period known as the COVID pandemic lockdown. And um, for the first time, no one could go into radio station WKCR. So some of us programmers there have been sending in old shows. And I came across this epic show. I mean, one of the real highlights of my radio career, which was hanging out with J-Mo, the legendary drummer from the Allman Brothers Band. And uh, as you'll hear, he had a really interesting career before that with Percy Sledge and Otis Redding. And uh, for three hours, we hung out at KCR and Spun Records and um, had a great time. In the studio with us also was Alan Paul, who wrote a book, One Way Out, which was a very great book about the um, Almond Brothers. I think it's called the Inside One Way Out, the Inside History of the Almond Brothers, I believe. And it's, it's them in their own words. And uh, a guy I have a lot of love for, John Coltelli, a music critic who uh, connected me with my buddy Josh Geisler, and we created something called the Acoustic Mandala Project. Uh, they might dig. You can look for that. Anyway, um, this is our hang. Since this is the podcast version, and I'm kind of careful with sharing um, copyright materials, we kind of fade in and out of some of the songs that we we play, but otherwise, this is a long hang with rock legend. I'm sure he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, J-Mo, getting the inside story about the almonds and Derek and the Dominoes, all this stuff. So, uh, hope you enjoy and take care. Peace. Jamo, what are your recollections of playing with James Carr? I just recently found that little clip on YouTube of James Carr singing, and it pulls back, and there's Jamo sitting behind the drums, cool as can be with his little shades on. <laughs> I actually didn't know you had played with James. How, how was he as a t- to back? Uh, real easy. Um, James Carr and Sledge was a lot alike. Uh, James was, was more... Uh, Hard like Otis than um, the Sledge was. Hard, you mean a hard, tough band leader or hard? Mm-hmm. You said hard. Um, yeah, like uh, Sledge is, you know, had yeah, what kind of voice he has. But James was more like, was a lot like Otis's, you know, uh, the difference between Sledge and Otis. 
uh, James and I think James scared a lot of those people. Uh, and companies used to have a way of dealing with people like James. Uh, if if there was a, a artist that they had put a lot of money into, they'd buy the contract and take it and put it on the shelf. Mm. <laughs> I see, right. Yeah. So James was one of those kind of guys and a few other people. And, and let's hear something about, I mean, Otis. He was already a star when you, when you started playing with him, Otis Redding? Yeah. I started playing with Otis in 1966. Um, a guy called me, a friend of mine, uh, guy who called me about a lot of gigs, a guy named, we called him Cadillac. They called him Cadillac because when uh, when Otis was gone somewhere to ride to, to uh, do a record or something, Donald Henry would jump right into Cadillac as soon as he left. <laughs> That's how he got the name Cadillac. But he called me about that gig, uh, April, April 1966. And uh, the other drummer I had gave a two weeks notice, uh, Woody Woodson. And that's how I ended up uh, with, with Otis's band. But then after the other drummer figured out that Otis wasn't gonna give him a raise, uh, then he stayed. <laughs> it was like the Mexican standoff. The guy Woody Woodson. <laughs> But Woody, Woody is the best guy I ever heard play Otis's music. I mean, he could play. He played Otis's music, man. As far as I was concerned, like, just excellent, man. Uh, sweet and sour, nasty, hard. Woody was a hell of a drummer, man. Now, I I worked for a guy named George Ween, who maybe you knew of, producer, Newport oh, producer. Yeah, we I, did a gig with him, a couple of gigs with him. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the first time I met him was when they had that Boston, the first uh, Newport out of Boston in the Boston Gardens, was it? In the Boston Gardens. 74 something, was it? Right, right. That was after the riots. Yeah. They had to get it out of. That's the only thing I ever did that, uh, that wasn't on my table of one day I'm going to do this was playing the uh, Newport Festival. Oh, okay. Well, it's not too late. <laughs> we stayed outside when they pulled the gate, they pulled the fence down, man. Uh, Oh wow, you were there. I was standing back. Yeah, I was standing back there with. Uh, we were going into what's her name was playing. Dion Slide. Warwick. Okay. And um, um, the piano player uh, with the nasty mouth. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he was back there, and they didn't know who he was, and he was upset, and he started calling them. So and so and so's and so and so and so's let me in. Meanwhile, uh, the fences was going down. They had set sheets on fire on the fences, man. And so the guy was with us. He said, "Man, uh, it's too much crazy stuff happening here. Let's get out of here." And the next day at one o'clock or something, uh, George announced that there would be no more Newports. Right, and I, apparently it was the set, the Sly and the Family Stone were playing. I want to take you higher. You know, and and there was almost a riot the day before when Zeppelin were playing, but he had he he came on stage and told them to play a slow blues and that kind of calmed things down. But but you know, Sly just said you know higher, <laughs> and and that's what did it, according to George. But the the reason I brought him up is I'm I I'm not good with my facts, so I could be confused about who he was talking to. But I think it was Otis. He said you know to save money, you know Otis would like. You know, everybody would be, be 
be sharing beds in the hotel rooms and stuff like that. Like it was a really tight operation financially. Well, a lot of people did that. Uh, you roomed with you roomed with other people. Uh, uh, you roomed with other people, and that wasn't the reason. Because of Otis, it was partially and not. The reason you room with other people because uh, if a room costs $80 and it was $40 between the two of you, you paid for your own room. Otis uh-huh. didn't pay for no rooms. Okay. Otis <laughs> provided, most of them provided uh, transportation and bandware. Mm-hmm. Everything else was yours. And and how was how was he, as a band leader, how, how did he operate? Um... As an artist, he had a band leader. He basically told somebody what he wanted, mm-hmm. and if they thought it wasn't correct, then he dealt with sound. He didn't deal deal with uh, E7s and this and that and uh-huh. the other. Um, and he say like, "This is what I hear," and he had he take that finger man, and he would slide it everywhere he wanted. And, and he played these tunes, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd say, you play this note, you play this note, you play this note. And when they played it, it all made sense. But when he was telling them what he wanted and, and what, you know, they said, man, oh, this is crazy. Right. But he knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, and his timing, he showed me some stuff on drums just about timing because he used to say, he said, Jay, you're rushing. I know what the hell he was talking about. Uh, as soon as I learned about time, I knew every time he ever told me I was Russian. <laughs> so he actually sat behind the drums and showed you some Yeah, you stuff. should imagine that. A guy that size sitting down to uh, a small set of drums like I got. You know, it looked like kid drums. He was a big man. <laughs> he was, was a he? real big man. i tell you what. We did a gig uh, in 66 when I was, when we was doing that tour that James Carr was on. Uh, was it? Um, Otis was the star, Sam and Dave was the co-star, James, uh, uh, Percy, Percy Welch was the next in line. It's like these people who had the biggest records, they came in line like that. Uh, Patty Bell and the Bluebells, Garnet Mims, the, uh, Ovations, um, lady out of Birmingham, I can't think of her name now, uh. Anyway, we did a show in Miami at the Dinner Key Auditorium. And this was back when they was having that Democratic uh, thing, getting ready to run for that, all those, that, that stuff. Right. And uh, Otis and Ali was supposed to do a fake boxing match. Those two guys would do anything for a laugh. Anything. And uh, we went in the dressing room back there. And, like, everybody left out, just the two of them was back there and myself. And uh, I said, can I get you guys to do me a favor? Is he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, this is Jay, my drummer. I took him and stood him like this. side so back to back, and Otis looked like this, and Ali looked like this. That's how big Otis was. Wow. Uh, he's demonstrating that That's with his hands that Otis was, was more than a head taller than uh, or something. Not so much taller, but... Bigger. Bigger. Wow. Yeah. Very big. Yeah, yeah. And how was he as a drummer? I mean, could he have played in? He, he could. Play, he could play time. 
I guess if he sit down and 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 mess around with it a little bit, he could be probably play anybody's gig in that kind of stuff, you know. I hear stories, Jamal, where Otis was playing in the Apollo right here, a few blocks away on uh, 125th Street. He went across the street to have a drink between sets, and some guy was giving him a hard time, and he took to nearly tarring and feathering this guy. You know, so he didn't hesitate. He used, you know, his stature wherever he went. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh boy, that's one on me. Well, let's go. Let's go to some music. I mean, I got a million questions, but uh, one one uh, track or uh, album that you, you know, JMO for those of you who don't know is a real jazz aficionado, and um, you chose this album uh, live at Peps. Uh, Youssef Latif with um, Richard Williams on trumpet, Mike Knock on piano, Ernie Farrow on bass, and you chose James Black on drums. So, uh, what 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 was it about James Black that you thought we should be? Uh James Black, uh, about all the drummers that I studied and went through. Uh, I ended up basically with Tony Williams and James, and I never heard anybody play drums like James played. Uh, I mean, he took the instrument and it, it became a, not that other drummers didn't play musical, but it became a musical instrument uh, under James because he was an arranger, he was a composer, um, he played cornet, he played piano, he played bass, and uh, he was one hell of a musician, man. And one of them cats, like they say, is on the on the on the uh, on the edge, genius and in insanity. Um, but I never heard nobody play drums like that, man. Uh, it was almost like he had an ear for each instrument. He had studied percussions so well, as in tambourines, uh, snare drums, bass drums, this and that and the other. And like the first cat to take it and all and put it all together and and, and play them. Um, I never heard anybody play drums like that. Well, let's go. This is Sister Mamie from Youssef Latif's Live at Peps.
James Black on the drums. We just heard Youssef Latif's Live at Peps. So we're getting the story here. You, you're, you're playing with all these uh, legends of R&B. Uh, I think Sam and Dave you played with as well. No. No? Okay, I got that wrong. They were on shows that I played with Otis. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, but I never played with those two guys. Okay. Well, anyway, Percy Sledge, Otis Ray, that's enough. That's right. <laughs> um, and you're playing with these killer guys, and then what happens? You get you get a call that there's some dude in Memphis Shoals studio who heard you on a record and and wants to meet you. What what ha- what happened there? Uh, I got tired of that rhythm and blues circuit. One reason was that uh, every time I'd go home to see my mother on a little break or something, I'd have to borrow money from her to go back to play with these stars, you know. And when I left home in 68 and went to uh, Macon, Georgia, the same guy, Cadillac, had called me up and he said, he G. Johnny, this is the way he talked, he G. Johnny, we gonna get together and go down to Macon, Georgia, Phil Walden to start in the studio. And all the guys that we played in Otis's band and Joe Tex's band and Percy Sledge's band, we gonna go down there and be the studio band. But the only thing knew anybody, and the only thing knew anybody knew anything about this was Cadillac. He had this vision, man, uh, about a lot of stuff. He was great about putting stuff together. Well, the only somebody went down there, Jackie Avery was already down there. Uh, he's the guy that really wrote uh, these arms of mine. Um, so he was already down there. Bill had him down there as a in-house uh, writing artist. And um, for a good while, I was down there, um, and maybe one or two other guys popped in there to see what was happening. And it was like, I got there in July 68, studio they started building on a studio in 69 and I don't know when they recorded the first date or whatever but it was about 70 because they put in so many of these that equipment Mm -hmm. and somebody would come down and say man that stuff is outdated or whatever they pull it out and put some more they must have went through three different Consoles and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. They must have went through three different ones. Um, and uh, once they finally got it together, it was like, cool. But um, I did the last, last rhythm and blues say that I did was with Clarence Carter's band. It was in um, December, the end of November, the December, with... Uh, this guy, Blue Walden, who was Phil Walden's older brother, asked me, said, uh, what's his name? Uh, Clarence Carter needed a needed a drummer and a bass player for a couple of weeks until he got some new players in because the other ones had left. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I ain't got nothing else to do. So I did that for a couple of weeks. And the first week... $150, $175, ever what the hell it was, 
turned to $120 because supposedly I didn't drive. So that was $25 a week if you drove. <laughs> and uh, they took out income tax, which at that time in 1968 was about $21. Now, you know, I guess maybe five bucks on a hundred or something, what the hell it was. So I said to myself, where's my money? He said, well, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't do this. I said, okay. So I'm thinking, one more week of this shit and I'm out of here. So that's fine. Um, I did another week and nobody has come yet. So it's a man like, uh, you want to stay on, uh, you guys can stay on because Maybe a while before Clarence gets somebody. I said, man, I'll stay until you get somebody. And then I'm done. Because you don't leave somebody in a hole because, you know, of ever what kind of reasons. You just don't do that. So when you get somebody, I said, then get somebody. Uh, I'm gone. But I was sitting around making. This was like uh, right before Christmas. I was sitting around making, playing gigs here, playing little gigs there, you know, for $10, $12, $15 or something. And uh, one night I played this gig and the guy gave us, he gave you like a couple of half a pints to split between the man and you got the money out the door. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first night we made about $8 a piece. And then that Sunday night, I think we made about $5 or something a piece. And I said, man, I said, I'm going to New York. I said, I'm going to New York and be a jazz musician because if I'm going to be starving to death, then I'm going to starve to death in jazz musician style. (laughs) You know? And that's when I got this call from Jackie Avery. And he said, hey, man, he said, "Uh, Phil's been trying to find you. He want to know if you want to go down to Muscle Shoals and play in Dwayne Allman's band. And I said, man, I'm going to New York. And I told him the whole story. And he says, well, Jay, I'll tell you what. He said, you should go down to Alabama, talk to Dwayne, meet him, y'all play some. And, uh, and if you don't like it, then, then go to New York and uh, be a jazz musician. So I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, I heard the guy play. I never thought I'd end up playing with him, but I heard him play. But Jack Avery told me, he said, Jay, he said, I ain't never heard nobody play like Skyman. That's what they used to call him down at Muscle Shows. Those who didn't know him, those who knew him called him uh, Dwayne Dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, Avery said, I played. He said, Phil wanted me to take this music down there and play it for Dwayne. He said, I played it. He said, the only thing in- interesting interested Dwayne, he said he wasn't interested in Johnny Jenkins, who was a fabulous guitar player and mm-hmm. singer and stuff. He was the guy that Otis traveled with and was like a, a roadie uh, valet and stuff. And Otis did that because he got to sing. Wherever he was at, doing whatever, because he, he did that in a number of places in California. So Otis was the valet for Johnny Jenkins. Yep. In California, he did that same thing uh, with uh, Jackie Avery was a singer. That's how he knew that song. 
And when he went to Muscle Shows, uh, Muscle Shows, when he went to uh, Memphis, he asked him if he could record it because they had this time left over. So they said, yeah, why not? So he did it. We're talking about these arms of mine. Just yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he said, only thing that Dwayne wanted to know was who was the drummer and uh, would he play in my band? So after the conversation with Avery, I remember my friend, Charles Otis, Honey Boy, who was uh, my favorite, my favorite drummer because I learned so much from him, uh, not about music, but about life. Uh, Honey Boy, they call him. He gave me one drum lesson. I had this uh, Joe Morello book on odd meters and stuff, and um, I showed it to him one day, and he said, let me see that. He took it, he looked at it, he closed it up. He said, let me show you something. He said, if you can play this beat, he said, you can play anything. And uh, he showed me this little beat, and I finally learned, it took about two weeks to learn how to play it. Um, but like most things, that was just a, let's say, a mantra to get you in touch with uh, God or ever who the hell you believe in or what, because once you get that kind of stuff going, you basically can do anything because you realize that it's, it's just a matter of being able to separate uh, your, your mind some kind of way. There's some kind of polyrhythmic thing you're talking about? No, it was just a simple... Uh, Basically, it was a jazz beat that that uh, that I heard Blackwell play a lot, uh, and a few few other drummers. Sound like something that you would play in Hard Silver's band. She's playing this on the cymbal, and you're playing this on your snare drum between your bass, your bass, and your snare drum. You know, it was like call and answer thing. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to learn how to play it because it I had to get it in my head. But Honey Boy told me, he said, uh, I remember I was 16 years old, and he told me, he said, hey, man, let me tell you something. He said, if you want to make some money, he said, go play with them white boys. <laughs> and when I, was, I got off the phone with Avery, and that, that thing went through my head. It went <laughs> boing, a little light. And he said, go play with them white boys. And... I really, I went, I went to play with Dwayne to make money. Jerry Wexler was 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 partners with Phil Walden and uh, uh, Jerry. What's his name down in 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 Muscle Shoals? I mean, down in yeah, in Muscle Shoals. Um, and it's like, how can you not make money with somebody like that? Right. You know. So I went down there and uh, I met Dwayne. And um, I set my drums up over in this studio where they did like recording soundtracks and stuff, big place. And in the other studio was a little bitty thing. The room was about a little bit bigger than this maybe. And uh, I set my drums up over there and, and, and um, Jerry, Jim? Rick Hall. Rick Hall. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Rick Hall had this had this uh, little thing that he let me use. It like it played, it played uh, twelve inch LP, so it played little forty fives, and you could plug into it, 
with headphones, and uh, you could not disturb anybody. So, man, I sit there like all day playing along with Coltrane and never who in the hell else I had played with whenever I, uh, whenever I practiced or played. And uh, when Dwayne got through with a session, he'd roll that baby right over into that room, and we'd fire up. And after about two days, shit, I forgot all about New York City and becoming a jazz musician. But, Jamal, what, what were you guys playing? I've always wondered. If it's just the two of you, you and Dwayne, what kind of, were you playing blues? Were you just, just improving? Were you? Improving. Uh, he started playing something like he always did from day one. He, and then when we got in the band, when, we, when Barry came down there, it was like, oh, my God. Not only had we met ever who you believe in, Jesus Christ or God or whatever, but then we went to heaven. <laughs> uh, I guess if there's a heaven, that was it, man, when Barry got there, Barry Oakley. So what what kind of impression did Dwayne make on you when you first seen Was he uh, a typical character for the time and place, or was he just from another planet, or what? No. He was a guy who knew what he wanted and didn't mess around uh, waiting for somebody to do this or that and the other. He did ever where he had to be to make a step or whatever. That's what he did. Um, and that was great with me because whenever I was home and wasn't playing music, I was washing dishes or washing pots or hipping my grandfather mow lawns or whatever, you know. Uh, so I admired that about him because uh, he was like, he really didn't need anybody to think for him. It's like, I got this thing I want to do. This is what I'm doing. And if that's what you can help him do some kind of way, then, uh, you know, you're cool. But if you couldn't, you know, you were cool still, but didn't have a lot of time to waste on anything. He loved playing music, and he could play with anybody. What I admired him, I guess, about mostly is the fact that he loved to play music till he could play, you know, with anybody. Because it's like, you know, let's play this song. Well, we don't have no bass player. Let's play this song. Well, we don't have a piano player, play the chorus, and this and that. I never did understand that, you know. And older guys used to tell me, don't you go to school and study no music. Don't study no harm, no, what do they call it, a theory. And then that's, so you don't need to do that. Don't do it. I never knew what in the hell they were talking about because I always figured if you had a, a, some kind of gift, then you could always uh, make it better by learning something about it. Um, but, boy, I tell you, sometimes when I see them guys scuffing over uh, E-flat against uh, this or that or whatever, it's like, <laughs> boy, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that shit. <laughs> because if I did, then it would be with cats who think, who thought the same way. And to basically get anything done, as long as everybody is developed in terms of knowing what they want to do and trying different stuff, that's the only way you can really accomplish that. Um, if you want to learn how to play blues as what we are taught blues is and the way it's approached, and you get guys who can't play nothing but that. You don't get guys who call themselves a jazz musician who can play blues. You get somebody who can play blues and you learn how to play that stuff because nothing else is being thrown in there. So you really learn what the base of that is and what it's about. 
And just like anything else. And you say, well, country, country ain't nothing but blue shit. You know, am I going to get thrown off this radio station? <laughs> You'll be all right. Um, so that's that's basically the way, uh, I mean, we had songs and, and stuff. Uh, we'd play when, when Barry came and when Barry wasn't there. But it was like, um, like basically anything we played, it was, a, it was a, you know, it was just a song. It was some music. And you played it, ever what it was. You know, Jamo, one of the things you told me, uh, I think, is in the book that I was really struck by was uh, some musicians might be great musicians, but when you play with them, they limit you. They box you in to what you can play. And other yeah. musicians open you up to where everyone's horizons keep getting bigger, which is what you felt with, with Barry and Dwayne. So was that something that you felt right away? Was it like immediately apparent to you that there was something like that going on? Um, yeah, because for the first time, and that wasn't any reason it should be any other way, um, like when we got together with the guys in Jacksonville and stuff, it was like we started say okay Dwayne said okay this is gonna be the band and it was like um, ever what ever what we played was the way we approached it it wasn't like you know someone say no, don't play that play this don't play that play this because that was a lot of don't play that when uh when I when I was coming up, which was good for me, you know, uh, but you have to be careful how you tell somebody that kind of stuff, you know, because a person can be invincible until you tell them they're not, and then, good luck. And and was was Dwayne like a natural leader? You know, in the book, people refer to him as a general, or they say that he's mesmerizing, that he was inspiring, that he was connected to a higher order of the world. I mean, how did that translate when you were with him? Did he have those natural leader skills that made everybody follow? And what what really was it about him? Could you feel it when you were around him? Did you want to go along with him because he was so focused and energized? Uh, yeah, because he was focused and energized. A lot of that other stuff is just a bunch of a lot of words. Uh, he was a regular person just like anybody except he knew what he wanted to do and that's what he was going to do. And you either joined him doing it and you made yourself in that class that he was in or, you know, you weren't qualified to be there. You could only be qualified to be there when you could play. And it's so interesting, like today, you see a bunch of people jumping up on the stage and they got a lot of cats who make so much money, it's ridiculous. And they shouldn't even be on a bandstand, you know? The way I got on the bandstand was I earned my way up there by going to jam sessions, playing one song, and you go next week and you, you learn another song, and when you screwed up, the guy said, hey, look here, it's a great kid, but you need to do this and work on this, work on that. And you worked on this and worked on that until you got, you know, to go to the next step. And like I said, Dwayne, um, if he said, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, and, and a lot of people, didn't have uh, that kind of thing to the point that they weren't interested in this is what they're playing over here and if, if you want to be 
famous or this, that, and the other, all that other stuff, then you got to do what everybody else is doing. No. That was not Dwayne, and it was not me, and it was not any of the rest of those guys. Uh, and uh, he was the leader of that because he, like I said, didn't, didn't, didn't care about uh, anything except what he wanted to do. And it wasn't that he couldn't work with somebody or whatever, but that's what that was about. At this time, I'd like to play one of uh, his favorite tracks, and I'm sure it's one of yours as well. Let's play some uh, Coltrane, My Favorite Things. And um, I don't know, we, we can talk a little bit about it, about it after. I guess you you knew Elvin and stuff, so yeah. So let, let's we'll get into that. But here's from the album, My Favorite Things, The Atlantic. Here's John Coltrane. You're tuned to WKCR 89.9 FM New York. The show is out to lunch. My name is David Ellenbogen, and I'm thrilled to have our very special guest, J-Mo, the legendary drummer from the legendary band, the Allman Brothers, as well in the studio, Alan Paul, who's just released an incredible um, collection. It's an oral history, you could say, of, of the Allman Brothers band story, all in their own words, and it's... Uh, it's on the charts right now. And actually, uh, at the next commercial break, well, not commercial break, but next time we play some music, uh, we'll give away a copy or two to some callers. And also, jazz critic John Coltelli is here, who put us all together. So thank you, guys. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, Can I ask a question? You know, J-Mo, J- you were always telling me that, that, that my favorite things, which we just listened to, John Coltrane, of course, was uh, Dwayne Allman's favorite song. Second. Se- okay. So, well, well, we'll get to the first one in a minute, but what, what, do, you, do you remember what he loved about it so much, and, and were you the guy who turned him onto it, or, or had he heard it independently of you? Um... He had he had heard all blues, uh, but you know it was something he heard. Uh, I had all of that stuff. I carried that stuff around with me, some kind of way, either armful of records, or 
tapes, cassette tapes that I had made some kind of way. Um, and everybody listened to it, you know. And everybody got ideas from it because we were playing that same kind of music at a very elementary uh, <laughs> level. Uh, and we're still juniors. So. And, um, well, like, so a lot of the pieces that you guys play seem to really come directly or indirectly from, from this kind of music, you know. I, I hear connection between impressions, you know, Coltrane's impressions and in, in memory of Elizabeth Reed. You know, they're both kind of in the same mode. Um, you you said that you use some of the same licks, uh, Jimmy Cobb's licks from All Blues on, in, in Dreams. Yeah, not the same licks. I use the exact <laughs> licks. Well. I use exactly. I can take any record that I've played on with the Auburn Rose and I can show you exactly where I got the lick as they call them uh, from it is exactly the same the only difference is I'm playing it versus them playing it Jamo I know you I know <laughs> you're in a very different context right <laughs> Jamo I know you're very modest about it but we know that it was your love for jazz that, and you bringing it into the band as far as listening you know I, I was in that Moroccan listening room at the big house upstairs <laughs> And, and everybody says in Alan's book that right. when you played Coltrane, everybody listened to Coltrane. Everybody played Coltrane. When you played Miles, everybody listened to Miles. Everybody played Miles. And, you know, human beings got a conscience and a consciousness, and we're all sentient beings. So I know that you introducing those very intense jazz influences to the band affected the actual architecture of these tunes. You know, when I was a kid listening to the Allman Brothers, Dwayne Allman seemed like the old uncle. <laughs> As we look back now, he was 24. So a lot of it had to do with growth and maturity. And the Allmans, although they were primed on R&B and the blues and had so much passion, dealing with jazz, I think, allowed them to widen up their musical soundscape real wide and real deep where they could do things like Elizabeth Reed, you know, which kind of reminds me of Coltrane's spiritual. Or you get a horrible incident in Birmingham and Coltrane's response is Alabama. Equinox, those slow, languid, beautiful tunes with a wide landscape where you could not only contribute soul as a musician, but in fact go a level higher and actually start contributing spirit. So how do you feel about that, the actual jazz influence into the Allman Brothers consciousness that allowed them to mature and grow as individuals and as a band? Um. It did that, uh, it did all of that. And everybody uh, could basically play. What, what, what it did was show people in, in, a, in a way, or show everybody in a way that 
is a different way to express yourself uh, without uh, leaving the melody or without leaving the bass uh, or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't have to be uh, so much of this and then eight bars of this and then the solo and then you're back to ever what. Um, as in terms, I'll, I'll give an example. I hope it works. Example of what you just asked me about with the band, how that affected the band. I'll say it affected the band. I think, I think, and I'm pretty sure about it. I don't, I don't particularly care what anybody else think <laughs> in this case, that what the Allman Brothers did, I think, is the most important thing that we did is to open the eyes of a lot of Caucasian musicians who were afraid to play. All they did was copy Johnny, uh, be good, and this and that and the other, and they never passed that. Um, when I first started, when I, before I ever played with Dwayne or Barry, I thought white people couldn't play music. I swear to God, I thought they couldn't play music. I thought only people like Stan Getz, uh, Buddy Rich, or certain people like that had the gift. You know, because supposedly all black people had the gift. Well, they didn't. I didn't. I heard something, I liked it, and I worked on it uh, and tried to develop it. Like dancing. Let me see you do a dance. I can't do no damn dance. Because I never did, you know? <laughs> I can get out on the floor and move to certain things that I hear that makes put any kid on the floor that's a year old and play some music for me and watch what they'll do. You know? It's just a natural thing. I truly know that we have opened the eyes and the ears and the heart of a lot of musicians. 90% uh, of that being white musicians. Uh, because, like I said, they look at the Allman Brothers band and they are completely inspired. More inspired than they were about anything before they ever got into that. And then there's those people who were inspired by it, which I found and figured out later on. Uh, I hear people talk about, you got me through this, you got me through that. So not only did it inspire musicians, it inspired a lot of other people to do things. Uh, because I'm always telling my wife, everything is relative. As far as I'm concerned, everything is relative. You know? So it don't matter about what the situation is. The answer is pretty much the same if you look at, you know, what you're dealing with. So to me, everything is relative. Uh, and, and that's what I truly think about what happened to the Allman Brothers uh, band as a unit. The same thing. They were inspired by that stuff, and it was like <laughs> the jazz band or that kind of way of approaching music that I had been studying for a long time. And these guys hadn't been studying that particular personality of it, but they didn't have any, 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 any trouble adapting to it. And would you agree, Jamal, that it goes beyond race? I mean, in other words, oh, when yeah. you were playing with the soul bands, <laughs> they were stick, sticking to strict 45-minute sets. They ain't playing a minute over. You open up with the Allman Brothers, you start playing three, four times longer than that, and nobody's really looking at the clock. Or you have, like, blues, and then you have Barry coming in, adding, like, kind of a psychedelic hippie aspect to the whole head of the thing, and the music starts taking off in a different direction. So 
you know, like you guys really opened up to real pure soul, irregardless of race, irregardless of region. Race, don't, I don't think, has that much to do with it. Other, I think um, I think it's a matter of um, I think it has to do more with territory than race. And what I mean by that, if no one understands it, is that years ago, kids in bands uh, played John Philip Sousa and Ever What the Hell. You know, and a lot of them, a lot of the bands were great at it, you know. And then guys started throwing in little stuff, uh, pop tunes that was on the radio. And then they started, the, the band directors who were of another level started throwing in jazz and stuff. And then at 16 and 17, uh, and even younger, here were kids playing outrageous music that you, know, you thought were 40, 50-year-old adults that was playing this music. And it wasn't. So it all has to do with what you present someone with, what is, what's around them, to what inspires them. Uh, that gate, anything that you open up to them, they will learn and they do it very, very well. So it, to me, it doesn't have anything to do with race, but more it has to do with the, 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 the area. And that's not what I'm looking for, but that's the best way I can say that. What, what they're exposed to. Huh? In other words, what they're exposed to and you, you right. know, how, how much somebody pushes them and gives them the opportunity to yeah. see more. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that uh, Greg, just to get his hands on R&B records to get a Ray Charles, he had to, to risk getting uh, you know a beat down, just going to the other side right. of the track. Well, I'm not sure if he really risked getting a beat down, <laughs> but he felt That's like he That's what he, he says. Yeah, no, he said I, they caught hell. You know, yeah, he had right, a friend. Right, because and, you got to remember, you know, Greg was, uh, I think, about 13, 14, 15 when he was doing that. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, help me out. That was probably when in 19... When he was going with Floyd Miles over to the other side oh, of the track. To buy to go, records. To go buy these uh, blues and R&B records. So, we're talking about... Uh, this is off the top of my head, but about 1963-64 in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it was. I don't know if he was literally risking getting beaten up, but certainly it was pushing boundaries. He was risking his social standing, such as it was and whatever. Uh, and, and as he said it, it wasn't cool for him to go there. It wasn't cool for Floyd to bring him there. Everyone was right. kind of a little suspicious of them. Um, but I want to, you know, Jamie. Since you're talking about the expansion and what you, what you, how everything relates to everything, I think we're we're going to listen to Elizabeth Reed in a minute. But in memory of Elizabeth Reed, how did you and Jamo, uh, I'm sorry, you and Butch develop your your two drumming things? Now, the way you've always told it to me, you, you guys just sat down and started playing, and there was no talk about I'll do this, you do that. So no. the. But but nobody else has really ever done the two drumming thing quite like you. A lot of the bands that came after that saw, oh, the Allman Brothers have two drummers, we're going to get two drummers. They tend to have two guys who just sort of create more power by playing the same thing. 
and that's not how you guys ever approached it. So was it was that a concept, a vision, or did it just happen by playing? It just happened by playing. Like uh, what I just tried to explain is what you what what you're open to. What do you have? Uh, what are you presented with? When I was in high school, I played played in the marching band. Butch played in the marching band. Now, when I was in high school, I also played double drums. Uh, and the way I played double drums was just like what Butch and I are doing. You know? Always listen to what somebody is doing, and then you find a place where you're playing along with them. And not just, you know, a bunch of noise and shit going on, but you, you, you relate to something. Um, and to me, the fact that nobody ever did it or anything don't mean nothing because there's two trumpet players, there's three trumpet players, there's four or five trombone players, and there's ever what? And what do they do? They don't play the same thing unless they're playing uh, something to give a certain power of whatever, uh, but they don't necessarily play everything the same. And that's interesting that a lot of drummers who played in, in marching bands and played in school orchestras and stuff have different concepts when they sit down to a set of drums. And to me, the only difference is that you switched from an alto saxophone to a tenor saxophone. It's, it's still music, it's still a saxophone, you know. so playing with one drummer in a band like we do, you know, it's still music and it's still, basically I'm still doing um, the same thing by relating to something. I'm playing a part that, that's uh, the bass drum and he's playing a part that's the snare drum, only he's playing it on a full set of drums and I'm playing it on a full set of drums. All right, well let's go 43 years back to the day or we we think this is uh, <laughs> approximately yeah um, the Fillmore East the Allman Brothers Band you would say you, you guys are at your peak here huh or you're peaking this is a band flowing at this time right uh yeah we've been playing together two years now almost three years or something when did uh, it think about seventy one you recorded it in March of seventy one so really two two years. But yeah. but you know one one of the, my favorite moments in here my inter, all my interviews is I asked JMO uh, was was Phil Maurice a particularly good recording or, or is it just what you sounded like and he said both right <laughs> well here we go.
We're back in the studio here at WKCR 89.9 FM New York. In the studio here with me is Alan Paul, the author of One Way Out, which is a really a page turner. I burned through this book in like half a week. It's the inside history of the Allman Brothers. J-Mo, the drummer of the Allman Brothers for the last eh, 45 years, something like that. Um, and as well, jazz critic and writer John Coltelli are here. You know, can I, Jamo? Can I ask you something? Mention that you, you know, he's talking about you being on for for, in this band for forty-five years. It's the forty-third anniversary of the recording of what we just listened to at at Fillmore East. And you told me one time that when you were in high school, you used to sit in the in the music room and read magazine and read about people in the Duke Ellington or Count Basie Orchestra for thirty or forty years, and think, how's that possible? How could how could somebody be in a band for thirty or forty years? So now. Obviously, you can see how it can be done, but do you reflect on why it's done? I mean, do you think when you play music that long with the same people that it gets deeper? Do you reach things of unspoken communication that you just can't have in in shorter-term relationships? You play better with people that you've played with longer, um, basically. When I was in high school, uh, interesting, it took, took a while before I realized this, but uh, God sent Downbeat Magazine to 33rd <laughs> Avenue High School for Johnny Johnson. And why did he send it to me? Because I was the one who needed to read it. My band director didn't read it. A couple of uh, football coaches were familiar with it and they might look at it or something every now and then. Uh, but my band director would read it when I took, I showed him an article. If it wasn't about Bird, he didn't particularly care nothing <laughs> about it. <laughs> he was an alto clarinet player. He played uh, saxophone, bass, guitar. Um, I used to read Downbeat from front to back. And I'm talking about little ads and everything, everything. Uh, so much that I learned from that magazine, so much, so many things that opened my head up. Like uh, a little while ago, you're saying something about something about, and I can't remember what it was, but the answer is, I used to think that, you know, I heard, read a thing of what Dizzy Gillespie said. He said, you can't talk about music. And that's just a, that's just a concept that is basically true but you can talk about music and the reason that you can't is the same reason like i said everything is is uh relative the reason that you can't is the same reason that you can't talk about a lot of things because you don't talk about it that's why you can't talk about music that's why you can't talk about a lot of other things because you don't talk about it guys found out who went to vietnam and stuff that something happened to them over there and it all had to do with Agent Orange and what the hell else was in those, those jungles and stuff. Because they found that uh, after a few years, some of them had an itch, or some of them had a this or that or, or ever what. And you know, how they found out about it is 
when they'd finally start talking about, you know, hey man, you know, I got this so and so and so and so. You know what? I got that too. Or I got this. This has happened to me. And it's all has to do with you don't talk about it. Hmm. Because you can talk about music and anything else. Well, we are talking about music, and you're giving a lot of insight into why all of this works for you and how you approach it. But Elizabeth Reed is a great example, I think, of the double drumming throughout, and especially there at the end. And to me, JMO, it strikes me like kind of a classical composition where you take one instrument, you take another instrument, and you get them playing together, and you have one sound and another sound, but you're creating in a mystical kind of way, a third sound. And that's how the Allman Brothers drumming always sounded to me. You know, Butch is more straightforward rock, and you're much more leaning towards the jazz side. But when you listen to them together, it is the iconic sound of one of the great American bands. I mean, it has such a unique sound. And you were telling us earlier that when you were in Muscle Shoals, you thought to yourself, I got to go up to New York, and I don't care if I got to be a starving drummer. I'm going to do it in New York. <laughs> you know, it all seems to have panned out. You're in New York, and you're practically <laughs> a New Yorker. You guys haunt us every year. <laughs> but you're also a jazz drummer. You did not allow the band to change you. You stayed with that sensibility, and it helped to really forge a very, very unique sound. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And that's 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 so that's one of the things that that Dwayne Allman did uh was he was he kept that sound. And uh a friend of mine who's uh everybody is hip to uh told me about I don't know about 7 8 years ago. I was in I was in California, and uh, Earl Palmer had these these sessions on on Monday nights. I think it was in 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 Hollywood or somewhere, Burbank or somewhere. And um, so I went by there to see him, and they were getting ready to take an admission when I walked in, and they was playing some kind of something. Anyway, when they got through, I said to Earl, I said, "Man, you know what? I said you're the Duke Ellington of the drum set." And he said, well, he said, thank you, J-Mo. He said, but it's all a matter of making it fit. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he said, you can't play this, you can't play that. If you can't play this and can't play that, then you can't play. <laughs> because it's all a matter of making it fit. Dwayne didn't change anything about his playing and stuff uh, when he went to Muscle Shows to work in that studio because it was confining as it was when he was trying to do the hourglass or ever what band him and Greg happened to have at a particular time. And people kept trying to make it be something else that they didn't want it to be. It was more more like it was more like what Greg would have wanted than what uh Dwayne wanted. And some of the difference in that was that uh it don't make Greg any a less musician or anything, but the way people basically did things, and let's say a troublemaker and a not troublemaker. 
So Dwayne was a troublemaker. Dwayne was not. Gregory is not. <laughs> that may be more simplified to what I'm saying to make sense to anybody than anything. One was a troublemaker and one was, one was not. <laughs> the troublemaker was adventurous and he um, gained a lot of popularity and stuff. Different, different, different than Coltrane. Um, Dwayne and Coltrane seem to have accomplished the same thing. The Coltrane playing since he was 11 years old, ever what in the hell when he started playing clarinet. Um, and Dwayne, when he picked up the guitar because he saw his brother playing it, and um, then he couldn't put it down. He laid the motorcycle down and he picked up the guitar. Well, they seem to accomplish the same thing in a matter of like four or five years. On record. The recordings and stuff that they did. Uh, when did John become a star? When, when he left, uh, when he went to Atlantic, uh, Giant Steps. Yes. Meanwhile, all that other stuff that he had done was sleepers because... Somebody said he couldn't play a ballad and this and that and other and some more shit. But he went on and he did what he did. Dwayne did the same thing through the, the hourglass and the rest of it and then through the the, uh, the recording thing that he had. Um, he figured out how to make things fit because he certainly didn't change his playing. If you listen to stuff like the hourglass, and that kind of stuff, you can always hear that basic root of his sound. And basically, any, any, any artist, if you look at that work when he was four or five years old and look at that work when they were 15 or 20, you'll hear the basic things that they have always done. But you know what it is that work is. Jim, what I was wondering about is you, you talk about how Dwayne had this vision. He had the idea from when you first met him of two drummers and two guitarists and and he found obviously the right guys, uh, and he he didn't tell you what to play. Everybody did their thing. But do you think he could hear? This is what Jamo and Butch are going to sound like together. This is what me and Dicky are going to sound like together. Was it apparent to him when he heard you, when he heard Butch, that the two of you were going to be what you were together, or when he heard Dicky that the two of them were going to be what they were together? I guess to somewhat, uh, he must have. And I'll say that. I'll say this to say that. Um, when I was in high school reading that Downbeat magazine, um, all I could think about was, and this is not even when I was reading Joe Weider magazines, was, was going to become Mr. America. Uh, thank God I left that trail alone. <laughs> but... Um, I lost my thought there. You're talking about what you what you saw, what you learned oh, in Downbeat okay. Magazine. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to be the world's greatest jazz drummer, uh, the number one drummer in the Downbeat uh, Jazz Pole. About, what is this, 14? I guess about 15 years ago now, 96. 
I was talking to a friend of mine, you all know, uh, Elvin Jones. And I said to Elvin, I said, man, you know what? I said, uh, I just uh, got inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he said, ah, congratulations, J-Mo, congratulations. <laughs> and I said, well, it wasn't what I wanted. Uh, I said, I wanted to be the, you know, the downbeat number one jazz drummer, yang, 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 yang. And he said, well, J-Mo, you were just off a few specs. <laughs> he said, you made it, you were just off a few specs. He said, and then again, he said, it's never too late. Hmm. He, he always said that it's never too late. Well, I want, I, I want to go back to those downbeat days. I'm going to play a track that hit you really early on, and we'll be back with J-Mo. If someone would like a copy of this One Way Out, we have a copy to give to a listener. We'll mail it out to you, 212-854-9920. That's 212-854-9920. Ready for this one, J-Mo? You're tuned to WKCR 89.9 FM, New York. The show is Out to Lunch. I'm your host, David Ellenbogen. I'm joined by esteemed guests, J-Mo from the Allman Brothers Band, jazz critic and writer John Coltelli, and the author of the new oral history of the Allman Brothers, One Way Out. Um, By the way, I guess... Um, Alan Paul, that Alan, you have you have an event coming up. Is it Jamo's going to be there too? Well, Jamo and I have an event together. We're going to be doing something like this in a more condensed fashion, I guess, at the Upper West Side Barnes and Noble on 82nd and Broadway on March 20th, I believe, 7 p.m. Or uh, you can always get the details on my website, AlanPaul.net. But um, love to love to see you there. We'll be talking music and 
They can pick up a copy of the book. Pick up a copy of the book. You can pick up a copy, I hope, of uh, JMO's great CD we were just listening to. Yeah, we just heard, uh, well, we started off with um, an album, the Roundabout Midnight, Miles Davis album, which was one of the early ones to hit uh, Mr. Johansson here. And then, yeah, I think it was 56. And then... Um, we heard one from the JMO Jazz Band, which is a really killing band with a, a wide range of music. We heard that's more the jazz uh, side, but wow, that guy Junior Mac is your vocalist, slide guitarist. Is that correct, JMO? Mm-hmm. That guy. I, I think more people should know about this yeah, guy. Yeah, I think Junior is, is really under overlooked talent, and and I think JMO's Jazz Band the album's called Renaissance Man, and I. You know, I'm not just saying there because I'm sitting next to JMO. It's in, in my book, in my discography, I call it the underrated gem of the uh, Almond Brothers side catalog because I think a lot of people know about Warren Haynes' uh, band and Government Mule, and they know about the Tedeschi Truck Band with Derek Trucks. And, of course, they know about Greg Allman's uh, solo band, the Greg Allman Band, but not enough people know about JMO's jazz band. Uh, I think they're just a great band. That obviously was on the jazz side, and some of the stuff is, is more... I kind of uh, want to play that Leaving Trunk from that album. Yeah, I mean, Jamo, can cool? we play Leaving Trunk? Play what you want to play. Okay, <laughs> can I have that back? Like, sure. Show sure not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just visiting. So, yeah. And then uh, we, we had some ideas of stuff we wanted to do because uh, we were focusing on how this uh, jazz music kind of seeped into the 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 music of the Allman Brothers and and we you had mentioned that some uh some licks uh, Philly Joe licks had come come in completely uh verbatim into ain't wasting time no more and also you said that uh, dreams uh, in all blues there's a relationship was, uh, there was a song that I learned Philly Joe drum solo on also that Miles Davis uh around about midnight the ain't wasting time thing came from uh, James Black. Ah, uh, okay, James uh, Black. One of his signature, signature licks, and that was another one from Jimmy Cobb, Ed Blackwell, and Charles Otis, Earl Palmer. <laughs> They're all on that record. <laughs> and, and just those when, records. When, when people bought Eat a Peach, I don't think too many people are sitting there thinking that they're listening to uh, Ed Blackwell or Jimmy Coplex. So you snuck it in there. Just recycling. Yeah, well, it's like it's like sneaking the wheat germ into your kid's uh, chocolate milkshake or something. Man, don't come around here stealing my stuff. They stealing my stuff. Where'd you get it from? You know, we've been talking here for a while, and I'm sensing a little bit of a pattern here. <laughs> Jamo was in Muscle Shoals, ready to throw in the towel, and he says, I'm going to New York and being a, a jazz musician. And that's just about the time he tapped a young Dwayne Allman on the shoulder and became the first recruit into the band. <laughs> I know, too, through the book, Alan, that Butch Trucks in Tallahassee was just about to throw in the towel with his band, but tried one last time and got a little fledgling band together and Ironically right. enough, drove to Daytona Beach where he opened up one night for a band of young, long-haired, blonde guys that turned out to be the Allman Joys and afterwards went to Greg and Dwayne Allman's house, and that's how they met. In ensuing years, Butch Trucks also was, in a sense, saved by the Allman Brothers Band. Now, the writer of this book, Alan Paul, was also somewhere in Florida, 
That's Port right. St. Ritchie, perhaps. That's right, Newport Ritchie, yep. Newport Ritchie. And he, too, was just about to throw in the towel on his journalistic career, mm-hmm. a little tired of writing articles on Little League games. And again, even in that instance, it was yeah. an assignment on the Allman Brothers band that got him vamped up and really changed his life. And the band has kind of become part of his identity. He's got incredible access to the band is very trusted, and wrote a book that is absolutely riveting and fascinating because the chronological tale of the Allman Brothers Band is told through their very words, through scores and scores of interviews he's conducted over the years. So tell us about that moment, Alan, in Florida. You know, John, Florida you're, where you're, you're kind of freaking me out. I never made that connection before, so uh, I'm having like a little Twilight Zone moment here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I was, uh, you know, I was frustrated. I had been out of school for a couple of years. I had one job up here in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, editing a small weekly newspaper. That kind of fell apart, and I was drifting around doing a little bit of this and that. I worked at a record store on Bleecker Street for two days. I got fired um, because I was helping customers too much. I was supposed to be watching <laughs> to make sure they weren't shoplifting. I was more interested in, like, figuring out which album had Philly Joe Jones on it. That wasn't what they wanted. So I was, uh, yeah, at Loose Ends. My girlfriend got a job down in Florida, so I said, well, I'll go down there with you. So I moved down to Tampa Bay area, Newport Ritchie, which is sort of the armpit of Tampa Bay, to be honest. It looks like it would have a great beach, but there's no beach. It's right on (laughs) on the coast. And uh, I was kicking around doing freelance writing and working for the St. Petersburg Times, but I really was. I was covering uh, dog training, uh, not Little League, but almost, yeah, high school baseball. I'd drive out and to these small rural towns, cover a baseball game. And, you know, there was pre-internet. Then I'd have to run to a little payphone and call in a, a 50-word story, a 100-word story. You know, Joe Johnson struck out 11 as the Lakeland <laughs> And uh, I was sort of having enough of it. So, yeah, I was applying to graduate school and was going to become a teacher. I had a bunch of master's uh, things, including Columbia. In fact, uh, I think Columbia was the only place I finished and was admitted to. (laughs) Um, But uh, I was just about to throw it in, and uh, I got this assignment from Tower Pulse magazine to write about the Allman Brothers, which was my real love. Uh, They had just reunited, and I threw everything I had into writing this story. So I sort of bled on the page as much as I could and uh, came out really well, indirectly led to me getting hired at Guitar World magazine and changed the course of my life. Hmm. But I never did think about making the connection about JMO being ready to give up and move and Butch was ready to give up. I think, uh, you know, Greg often says he was always doubting that they would make it. He was often ready to give up. The one guy who definitely was never ready to give up, as far as I can tell, was Dwayne. <laughs> I don't think it ever occurred to him that whatever happened, that, that he wouldn't end up being successful and, with his music. And in fact, he turned down a tour with Eric Clapton when, you right. know, he could have uh, been with Derek and the Dominoes and been an instant. Right. A rock that was, star. That was one of the things that was interesting to me uh, in researching this book. As much as I did know before I started writing it, I, I didn't really realize just how close Dwayne came to leaving. And uh, you know, Dwayne's daughter Galadriel Allman uh, also has a new book close. out. <laughs> about this close. Well, Jamo <laughs> said he didn't come that close, but but you know, Galadriel has this new book out called "Please Be With Me." Um, uh, you know, where she kind of, she was two years old when he died and she's looking to get to know him through the, the book. It's also a wonderful book I, w- I would recommend to anyone. Uh, but one of the things she has in the back are, are a collection of letters, some from Barry Oakley to his wife, Linda, some from Dwayne to her mother, Donna. And one of them, he, he talks about that 
offer from from Eric Clapton. Sounds in that letter, Jamo, like he was taking it pretty seriously. I mean, he was talking about making, I think, five thousand dollars a week, and as opposed to nothing. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to negative money. I mean, Jamo could answer right. that. What they were well, really making. Well, it's all we're something. all in the world of speculation now, aren't we? As opposed to, uh, well, I come to New York City, and I call my man Honey Boy, like I always do, and um, he said, "Hey, man, how you doing?" I said, "I'm doing all right, man. How you doing?" He said, "Look here, uh, Ray Charles needs a drummer." Um, I can get, I can make a call and and uh, you can go down and do the audition. Probably your gig. And I said, um, now. I said, I almost said, why me, Lord? But I didn't. I just said, man. I said, you wouldn't believe this. I said, I can't believe what I'm about to do here. I said, uh, I just got in a band uh, with these cats. And um, I said, I don't think Ray Charles and anybody else uh, will make me leave this band. And he said, oh, yeah? I said, yeah, man. I said, you told me a long time ago, go, go play with them white boys. I said, uh, here I am. And um, I didn't even make the audition, at least long. You know, I wasn't interested, wasn't interested anymore. Dwayne left uh, everywhere in the hell we were at. We were in Cincinnati doing some gigs. I don't know whether it was the first gig, second gig, or what. But anyway, because we were doing like a weekend, two nights or something. This place called Lud Ludlow's Garage. It was a hell of a place. Uh, it was like a city. It's like, <laughs> you tell you what it was like. It's like going backstage at the at the uh, at the Rolling Stones gig. It's like they create London uh, off the stage. You go back there and it's you know it looks like you're in a goddamn movie or something. Uh, you know you're just waiting on the genie to jump out or somebody to jump out with a big sword and go. And I mean it's like that, man. It's like unbelievable. Um. So we played. What, a couple of gigs uh, without Dwayne? And then what was it, the, the third night there, the second night there, which one it was? Uh, Dwayne came back. Uh, he joined us ever, excuse me, he joined us ever where we were at. But he went and did those gigs. It was in Tampa and somewhere else I can remember. And uh, he said, uh, okay, man. Uh, let's get some playing done. Because when we played a gig in in, in Atlanta, in Miami, one time, and uh, Eric happened to be there recording, so he wanted to come see that chap who played the slide guitar, and I guess uh, I guess. Uh, Dwayne did to him what John Coltrane did to Sonny Rollins. Mm -hmm. um, 
the next thing, the gig is over, and we're invited over to the recording session. Well, everybody went inside, and um, I went in there, and I heard them playing. And um, I don't know if it was two songs or just one song. Anyway, and we had this Winnebago. So I went back outside to the Winnebago, took Tony Williams' emergency, stuck it in there, and uh, I sat back and waited on the rest of them to come out. <laughs> because I really couldn't, I couldn't stand to listen to anything else that was in a different place than where we were coming from. And in terms of that, it was like this, but in terms of what we were playing, it was like this. And, you know, I immediately heard it. I didn't have to go in there and, and listen to Eric Clapton or anybody else, anything that was going on in there. And I wasn't inspired to do anything except what I did. Butch went in there and played a couple of tracks, uh, something that's on one of them box sets or something that right. Eric released. Uh, but I just wasn't impressed by anything that was going on in there. Because what we were doing, I couldn't be impressed by that. You know, not in terms of not even going there listening to it. And that's what I did. One song or two songs, that's what it was. And if you listen to that, that record, ever whichever, which. The what Derek is it? and the uh, Dominoes album you're, you're referring um, to. Song, were they playing. Key to the Highway? Hmm? Was it Key to the Highway you're talking I don't about? Know what it's it a was. blue, uh, eight but bar it was, blues. No, it wasn't that. It was. Oh. It was uh, and we play a thing uh, we got from Donovan called that was a mountain jam, right? First, and that was a mountain. What's right. it? First there was a mountain, then it became mountain jam. Uh, first that was a mountain. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, we started playing it. We called it mountain jam. There's some stuff on that that we used to play uh, and still plays, and part of it is from the going into the bridge of that song. And um, they were playing that on a, uh, I'm talking about on the record. I didn't ever what they mm -hmm. did in there when I, when I was out in the thing. I don't know. But later on, I heard I heard the uh, what they had done, and it was like I immediately knew why Dwayne didn't do that because you know it's like he had to do what he did. You know, he had to go down there <laughs> and see. It's like, like Avery said to me, go down there and see, and if you don't want to do that, then go ahead and you all can start the death being a jazz musician. Well, <laughs> this is when Eric heard what was going on, or Dwayne heard what was going on. He had enough of it, and he came back to where he could play because uh, he couldn't have played in that band, you know. Well, I'd like to... Uh people in that band or what was going on was not enough and a lot of people don't understand this and, and a lot of them will never get it that what was going on in that band could not have gone on in Eric's band or anybody else's and Dwayne immediately knew that uh, wow well that's one of the great bands I mean that's a heavy statement because Derek and Domino's album is con widely yeah. considered to be one of the great albums of all time Right, and you're saying that it, it wasn't enough uh, food for for Dwayne Allman to feed no. off of. It wasn't musically. It wasn't 
anything that we hadn't been doing for the last year. Right. So we were well seated in what we were doing. And uh, the musicians were not... We're not bringing that kind of stuff, you know, to that session. Uh, there was some fine musicians and stuff, you know. Like, uh, it's, it's like the difference in, oh, what a great drummer. And then the guy goes to a gig to play in a band. And it's like, what happened to that great drummer? Or what happened to the musician? Because he was a great drummer. He still is a great drummer, but he can't play shit in terms of music. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that. Cats that are great musicians, you know, and great section musicians and stuff. But in a lot of cases of, let's play music, you know, what key and this and that and other and some more shit. You only need to do that kind of stuff with lawyers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if you're fixing to operate on somebody, you need to do that kind of stuff. When you're playing music, it's like Miles Davis did it. You go in there and give me a play this and that. That's the way we played. As soon as we heard somebody play a couple of bars or something, or a bar, uh, there's always, you hear space to do something. And you don't just start doing something because everybody else is doing something. When you hear a space to do that, it's when you do it. Uh, and we were, man, we were so much advanced from what in terms of the way we were playing than anybody else. So our whole thing was way ahead of a lot of other people who had been together for 10, 12, 15 years and on. Uh, <laughs> see how long Dwayne lasted in that band? Somebody can say what the hell they want to say. I was there when he came <laughs> back. <laughs> I, I want to make sure we uh, introduce our audience while we have you here to to a little bit more of, of your band and this great singer-guitarist, Junior Mac, because I, I think he's a spectacular talent that some people might not have heard. So I want to play this track, Leaving Trunk, which I've heard, is the, is that the track that inspired Dwayne to play Slide? Is that, is that, is no, that was no. Statesboro Blues. Statesboro but, but Blues, also, okay. I believe Leaving Trunk was also on that first uh, Taj Mahal okay. record, but, but yeah. So let's fun. just jump into some music, and then we'll be back with all these fine gentlemen. But the blues made me smile. 
Tune to WKCR 89.9 FM, New York. The show is Out to Lunch. My name is David Ellenbogen. We're joined by J-Mo of the Allman Brothers Band. He's been choosing the music and telling us some of the stories of his 45 years on the road with the Allman Brothers and, and even earlier than that, all the, the great R&B And the day that I met Junior Mac. And the day you met Junior Mac. I never Junior said Mac. a bad word until I met Junior <laughs> he played a, so well until I was saying stuff I couldn't believe what I was saying. He's a bad influence. Yeah. Um, indeed. And we played uh, a track of J-Mo's jazz band starting that set, Leaving Trunk, featuring the said bad influence Junior Mac on slide guitar and vocals. And now we just chose a uh, track selected by J-Mo, and that was... I never know how to pronounce that. Ta the Aldud. Aldud? I don't know. Um, the exotic record <laughs> from Alice Coltrane. And um, recorded in the Coltrane studio at the Coltrane home in Dix Hills. Yes, and indeed. And um, that is a project that's brought, I guess, it brought us all into this room in a sense because uh, John Coltelli, our other guest, is a board member of the Coltrane home in Dix Hills. Where's the record at? Anyway, yeah, somewhere, uh, that's the uh, National Security Agency. Anyway, uh, so you, you, that, that, that drum solo there really spoke to you. Uh, Bill Riley. Ben Riley. Uh, Riley. Oh, the name of that record is uh, Pata. Is that? The El Daoud. Pata, okay. Is that, do you know what that means, anybody? (laughs) Uh, Something (laughs) Egyptian, I would imagine. Yeah, that's what it seems like, right? 
Yeah. No, but it's it's cool to sit here next to Jamo as as that drum solo is playing and he's sort of replaying it on the on the console here. Right, and he seems to know a lot of the a lot of the riffs from that Miles Davis as well and horn lines and such. So believe it or not, we're running low on time, and there's a few things we definitely wanted to do. We we wanted to to play a little bit of all blues, which I'm sure our our esteemed listeners know like the back of their hand. And then we'll play Dreams, because apparently there's a relationship between the Allman Brothers' Dreams and uh, and Miles Davis's right. All Blues. And J-Mo just told us uh, that, that All Blues was Dwayne Allman's favorite song. Is that, is that right, J-Mo? Yep. So, uh, His favorite song of all time, All Blues. So... So Davis version of all blues. So, um, what what are the elements uh, to your ear that 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 make uh, all blues kind of fold into, or or, or how, how did it influence um, um, dreams? I don't know. Uh, one thing I can say that a lot of times, like when you do, when you do different kinds of drugs, uh, they can put you in certain kinds of places, according to like what you're listening to, when. You hear that, you know what it is. Uh, your mind can capture things um, that will sit there and look for different releases. And it don't necessarily mean that uh, you do drugs and try to do that. But if you're going to try to do that, you don't do that when you do the drug. <laughs> because you get lost, you know. And it's like a sound has to be in your head for it to come out. I know that for a fact. If something is not in your head, it's not gonna come out. Um, so to me, that a song like that is like, from playing it, I would say, not from listening to it, but from playing it, that it's a uh, it's a drug song. Dreams. Uh, all, all blues. blues. All blues is a drug song. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's got that hypnotic, hypnotic, uh, you know. And I know from smoking pot, getting really when your mind stays together smoking pot because. I used to like to watch cartoons and smoke pot. The pot they got today is so damn strong until uh, I don't I don't bother with that shit no more because uh, you can't watch anything. You don't even know who you are. <laughs> but uh, to me, that that song, and then um, Paul Chambers is the bass player on that. Right. Paul was a, you know, he used some heavy stuff. Uh, as far as I know, maybe 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 Jimmy Cobb was the only cat on there who didn't 
do any of that stuff. I don't know what his past was, but uh, I don't think he—I don't think he had any past like that, as I know of. But uh, that's all I know. All but, right. But you—you you guys took some really direct uh, riffs and ideas from Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb, especially in *Into Dreams*, didn't you? Um. For one, it's a kind of six-eight groove. What is the bass? What is the bass part on on uh, on dreams? Well, we're gonna listen. Yeah, to let, let's let's right. let's investigate this because uh, I together. Don't, uh, so all I know is Barry started the bass line, and I relate to things by what I hear. Uh, it's not preconceived or uh, what. So ever what Barry was playing caused me to play what I was playing. Uh, and it's so interesting that, that Greg come up with what he came up with. Uh, because originally, uh, Whipping Post was a song just like Stormy Monday Blues, you know? And uh, I remember we, we were rehearsing this place in a place called the Comic Book Club or something in Jacksonville. And Barry started playing this, this line on the, uh, on the verses and stuff. And then it went back to the original uh, Stormy Monday Blues in the Sometimes I, well, that's what the whole song sounded like. It's what that turnaround, or is it a turnaround or bridge? It depends uh, how you want to yeah, think I about it. I, would, I think of it as the bridge, but I guess you could call it the turnaround. Um, the whole song sounded like that. So I don't think that song really would have been anything uh, in terms of what it became if it wasn't for that. Jing 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 is basically what it would have been, and he just kind of docked it up a little bit. Jing 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 jing. And the rest is history. Yeah. And we did a lot of songs like that. Simple, just show you how simple it is to make something, you know, it don't take building a railroad to, to you know, to get from here to the next block. <laughs> simple little bass line. All right, on that note, let, let's check out All Blues, a little segment of it, go into dreams, and then we'll see if we have time for any of those others. We're here in the studio with J-Mo.
You're tuned to WKCR 89.9 FM, New York. I'm here in the studio with Alan Paul, the author of One Way Out, the inside history of the Allman Brothers Band. He is going to be with our other very special guest, J-Mo, the drummer of the Allman Brothers from the beginning. That'll be March 22nd? 20th. 20th. March 20th, Upper West Side, 82nd, Barnes & Noble. And Broadway? No, I mean... Yeah, 82nd and Broadway, yep. and I, I believe it's at 7 p.m. 7 p.m., and you can meet both Alan and J-Mo in person, pick up a copy of the book. Also, the great jazz writer and board member of the Coltrane Home, John Cotelli, is here. Thank you, John, for Thank everything you, you do. Thank you, Alan and J-Mo. Thank you so much for being here. You really have been informational and inspirational, and I thank you for it. Uh, thank you. I think this is our natural setting for each of us. Thank you all. Thank you yeah. very much. All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, a pleasure. We'll be back. Be back here tomorrow. <laughs> you can. Hey, you can. That was a real invitation. Yeah, we're having too much fun in the in the record stacks. Yeah. Right in there. <laughs> um, we're gonna finish off with the last minute or two because uh, I know you love this album. Uh, I know you love Ed Blackwell, and this is Eric Dolphy at the five spot. So maybe uh, you have a word about Eric. Ed Blackwell, before we uh, say goodbye, J-Mo. Um, uh, I learned a lot about uh, drum conversations with uh, with Ed Blackwell. Um, a lot of stuff the way the way he the way he uh, the way he plays, um, especially uh, a lot of the stuff that people are trying to play and they don't have any idea about it's all about just a conversation but it has to make sense it may be as radical as it can be but it has to make sense um i did one cd it's called ed blackwell a tribute just tri- actually a tribute to ed blackwell and the way it really started was because uh this guy a friend of mine uh who was blackwell's manager uh kunle imwanga uh wanted to wanted me to donate some money to the Chicago Art Ensemble to come to play uh, at this, Ed was teaching at, uh, in uh, Newtown, uh, Middletown. And I said, uh, well, look, why don't you let my band play? And uh, we'll uh, take the money that we make from that and donate it to their salary. He called me back in about five minutes, and he said, why don't your band just play? And I went, oh, yeah? <laughs> so I jumped at the site, the chance. And uh, so we played. I, I said, let's record this. And we recorded it. And when it came out, we called it Ed Blackwell because the whole thing was about uh, raising money for Blackwell's. Yeah, but what the hell it was? I don't remember what it was. And... Uh, when Ed was real sick, he used to be right down. He was in, he was in the uh, St. Francis Hospital, which is right down the street from where I used to live in his condos. And I used to walk down there and uh, see him. Uh, he'd be sleeping a lot. His wife just be sitting there with him. He was sleeping a lot. Uh, anyway, Ed Blackwell. 
Charles Otis reminds me a lot of Ed Blackwell when he plays jazz. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we'll hear a little Eric Dolphy uh, with Ed Blackwell, Booker Little, Ma Waldron, Richard Davis on bass. And uh, we hope you guys will come back. Listeners, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure. <coughs> J-Mail was- David Ellenbogen here. Thanks for listening. Um, what a, an amazing opportunity to speak and hang with the legend J-Mo. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, you can check out archive of over 300 of my other shows at nycradiolive.org. Thanks for listening.